Welcome to The Whole View. I'm Stacey Toth of realeverything.com. I'm all about loving the skin you're in and being healthy inside and out. And I'm Dr. Sarah Ballantyne of thepaleomom.com. I believe that scientific literacy is the key to improving public health. Welcome back to episode 405 of The Whole View. And today we're talking about a super interesting topic submitted by a listener, which if you didn't know this already, we love it when you email us and ask questions. (laughs) Yes. Um, mostly when it's topics that we're interested in and want to dig into the science on, or we already have a little bit of base knowledge and can expand on it pretty easily. Um, that is to say, if you've submitted questions and haven't heard from us, my deepest, sincere apologies. We do our best. Um, it might just be a really hard question. (laughs) I need more time to research it. I mean, we actually do have like, there, it, this is a uh, um, uh, you know back, backstage window window into the behind the scenes um, of our podcast, but we definitely have like three different streams for questions. There's the uh, uh, Stacy request question stream. There's the listener quest question stream that is. Um, like real straightforward podcasts to put together, right? Like 10 hours of research to go into. And then there's the, whoa, that's a really challenging question listener um, quest, like question stream where, oh, that's going to take 30 or 40 hours just of research to be able to dig into, you know, the level of depth that we normally do in these podcasts. And those are the ones that, you know, tend to get sprinkled in only a few of those, those types of questions, per year probably. Um, and this is, this is one of them. This one has been in our queue for, um, uh, quite a, quite a while. And, um, one of the reasons why I was really finally able to, um, to put together the, the science on this particular question is because it ended up being a topic that I researched um, in depth for my gut microbiome book, so um, so I was able to pull though like pull those threads into the other research that I had to pull together for the actual podcast. Um, so when you ask a really really challenging question that requires a super deep t- dive into the literature, I have to apologize. Um, those are those are definitely the questions that. Um, you know, they're fascinating. I love, I love researching them, but because they're so time consuming, it's really, really tough to do more than a a few of that, that level detail question per year. And when we do get to it, we make it worth your while. (laughs) (laughs) Hashtag truth. So I'm super excited and I know it's going to be an interesting and science rich show. So I want to, um, Go ahead and jump in. Are you ready? I am. Um, So our listener asked, is the environmental working group's dirty dozen list based on strong science? My husband listened to two episodes of the Skeptoid podcast on organic versus conventional farming. Mr. Dunning said that we are being duped into paying extra for organic produce. 
it is sprayed with larger amounts of pesticides than those used in conventional farming, and the organic pesticides have been shown to cause disease. My husband believes Mr. Dunning because he provides references and appears to be non-biased in other podcasts. I've been purchasing organic produce according to the Environmental Working Group's Dirty Dozen list. It says on the Activist Facts website... There's really only one thing you need to know about the EWG when it comes to its studies of toxins. 79% of members of the Society of Toxicology, scientists who know a little something about toxins, who rated the group say that the EWG overstates the health risks of chemicals. I am walking around with holes in my shirts and I haven't gotten the air conditioning fixed in my car so that I can afford organic food. Am I wasting my money? I feel I cannot trust anyone but you. So first of all, my heart. Like, I just, I heart you. Um, and I appreciate that you trust Sarah and by proxy me. <laughs> <laughs> but I think I, I just, I want to kind of uh, temper before we jump into everything, which is that um, if you haven't yet listened to the 404 shows before this one, um, we have talked a lot about how both Sarah and I, especially over our evolution of this healthier living lifestyle, have modified the way that we purchase and prioritize our own foods and our own budget. And it's not something that we, either one of us, started out doing. And I still don't buy um, everything organically. I do an organic box from my like secondhand produce delivery company that's local here. Mm-hmm. Um, we talked about that before. Um, but I oftentimes add on things that are only available through them non-organic. And I do so conscientiously of what are the things that are most highly sprayed, whether it's organic Mm -hmm. or non-organic with pesticides. And um, does it have a peel or, you know, is there something on it that can kind of protect it? So for example, you know, we've talked about like grapes are one of those foods that my family just doesn't eat if it's non-organic because of how high that is for being directly sprayed in order to get all the bugs off of it and blah, blah, blah. That's a personal choice that we're making. Nothing about what we're going to talk about in this show is intended to be a judgment on you or your family or what you did in the past or what you're doing now or in the future. This is all education so that you can be empowered to make the choices that are best for your family at the correct time for you. Um, where we, my family is today, 10 years later, is a lot different than where we were 10 years ago. And what we want to do is help you so that you can walk away and ask questions. I remember being, having like that light bulb moment early on in this process of going to the farmer's market and understanding the difference between is it organic or not, or was it sprayed with, um, pesticides or not like maybe someone doesn't have an organic certification but the product might actually be what you would define as your standards for what you want your family so um, while we're going to talk about this particular question I think there's a larger um, philosophy that each family needs to adapt for what works for them and know that no one is perfect like I currently I'm obsessed with bag salads (laughs) and it's coming in a plastic bag and like it's easy and it's getting vegetables in my family because we're not going to the grocery store and that's what's working for us you know so um 
for those that are listening later, this is uh, quarantine week 4008. Um, approximately. <laughs> so, approximately. So um, I just want to put that out there. And I know, Sarah, you, you've gone through a similar evolution with mm-hmm. your family. And so I don't want any listener, you know, starting in their journey to think that they need to forego clothes and necessities in order to have organic food. I, th- I think that there is a way to prioritize your budget in a way that is consistent with what your family believes. And if that's the choice that you make, like more power to you, but I don't want someone else to think they're not doing it right if they're not doing that or what, you know what I mean? It's, yeah. it's so personal. Um, I'm really glad that you prefaced with that. And I definitely want to sort of come around to this point again um, when we wrap up, because I think it's so important to emphasize that um, there's sort of like foundational health principles, right? It's like nutrient density, diet, eating a lot of fruits and vegetables, um, right? So like the uh, three-quarter vegetable type uh, approach, um, getting enough sleep, managing stress, Um, living an active lifestyle, right? So these are like foundational principles for health. And then there is what I sort of think of as next level, right? So next level is, um, you know, maybe it's uh, adding some biohacks, right? Um, You and I both really love Juve Red Light Therapy, but that is a next level biohack. Um, There's, um, you would put supplements into next level. You would put, um, paying, you know, the extra for grass-fed beef into next level. And the same for what we're about to talk about is organic fruits and vegetables. And why that is um, a better choice, but, like, let's make sure that we're really clearly differentiating between this better choice as a next-level choice versus a foundational principle, right? The foundational principle would be eating lots of fruits and vegetables. The next level choice would be um, improving the quality of those fruits and vegetables. So let's, let's be really clear that this is, um, this is uh, beyond the basic principles, but still something that is overall a better choice. And we'll get into the science of why. And I, I think, one of the other things that I, I really want to emphasize is, um, you know, I'm going to get into a lot of detailed science on how pesticides impact the gut microbiome. Um, the environmental working group's overall approach is in many ways more rigorous than the American regulatory agencies. Um, and the EWG tends to align better with, for example, the European Union, um, Health Canada, um, right? The, these other regions of the world where the criterion for um, approving a chemical as a food additive or um, you know pesticides for use in agriculture, um, food agriculture, that they're looking at the same studies as um, the FDA, as the EPA. And they're coming to a different conclusion. And the EWG typically aligns better with these other regulatory agencies than the American ones. Um, so let's start there. Let's start with what is the criteria? Like, Can I why say yeah. something? Because I had this um, like realization a year or two ago with going through how this is looked at from 
um, personal care product ingredients is different in Mm -hmm. those countries as well, right? So in researching that, what I realized is um, in America, we look at these chemicals, and this is not a slight to say what's right or wrong, although I have my own personal beliefs that I think are pretty clear. Um, But the (laughs) thought process is um, it's assumed fine unless proven bad, um, if that mm. makes sense, right? Like yeah. we introduce these things and then we're like, it's fine unless you can prove that it causes cancer, unless you can prove that it does something bad. Um, in Europe, for example, it is not okay until proven safe, which mm-hmm. I like that. I like that better. <laughs> So I think that's, that's just like a simple thought process for me that I kind of, I was like, oh, I see what we're doing in our mm-hmm. approval process now and why the American approach is different. Like that's, that is, that is how the, the, the people are looking at the approval process. That is their basis for decision making, if that makes sense. Uh, it does make sense. I feel like we can just wrap up the podcast now. Okay. <laughs> let's go into the Science. Science. <laughs> Um, so the the FDA safety assessment for chemicals in food um, have a variety of criteria. So they look at acute, subchronic, and chronic toxicity. So like, does it kill you? Um, they look at carcinogenicity. So does it cause cancer? Uh, genotoxicity. Does it cause uh, DNA damage, gene mutations? They look at reproductive and developmental toxicity. Does it impact the reproductive system? Does it cause birth defects? They look at neurotoxicity. Does it damage the brain? And they look at immunotoxicity, which is, is it impacting uh, the immune system and how the immune system is functioning? Um, Pesticides on top of those go through an additional impact evaluation for um, environmental and ecological impact. So is it, uh, you know, damage, is it getting into the streams and killing fish, right? So um, there's this additional uh, level of criteria that are not related to the human health aspects. And so when you look at this, you know, this all sort of falls under toxicology and um, sort of cancer uh, as the, the two main, like, groups of criteria. And when you use these metrics, um, the vast majority of studies that have looked at the impact of pesticides on human health um, really only detect a measurable impact in occupational exposure. So that is the farm workers that are spraying the crops, for example. And the uh, idea is that the much, 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 much lower exposure that the most of us have, we don't see that signal in these scientific studies. Now, there's some challenges with that. So one of the challenges is we can clearly see problems with occupational exposure. We can also clearly see high exposure in rodents causing all kinds of issues. And the, um, the assumption is that uh, acute exposure is not the same as low-dose chronic exposure. So acute high exposure is above some kind of threshold for impact that is not going to be replicated by chronic low-dose exposure. And that may be true, but it's not a particularly good assumption. But one of the challenges that we have in um, 
in evaluating pesticides is that our exposure is already so vast. Um, you know, there's already basically there's there's no humans <laughs> at all um, that don't have an exposure to multiple different kinds of pesticides and the diseases that you would look at to in epidemiological studies to draw a correlation between pesticide exposure and right cancer or cardiovascular disease or diabetes right these things that would typically be measured those diseases are also really multifactorial. They're caused by a lot more than just pesticide exposure. Um, it may be a contributor, but it means that it's really hard to pull that signal out of the scientific studies. That being said, there are still studies that are linking the chronic low-dose exposure to pesticide re residues that we would get exposed to by eating food, drinking contaminated tap water, that have um, correlated pesticide uh, exposure in the food supply with, for example, increased oxidative stress, which would drive inflammation and then correlate with a lot of chronic illnesses and correlates with some cancers. And it's because of those studies that there are a huge number of agricultural pesticides, 72 of them, that are routinely used in the USA that are either completely banned or in the process of being completely phased out in Europe. Um, so 72 out of about 500-ish different pesticides that are sort of used globally, you know, 72 are used in the USA that are not used, but also those 72 different pesticides account for approximately a quarter of all of the agricultural pesticide use in the USA. So about a quarter of the pesticides that are used in our food crops are pesticides that are banned in the European Union. So even though 72 out of 500 doesn't necessarily sound like that big a number, the amount of actual pesticides it is, it's 322 million pounds of pesticides per year, approximately. Um, and that was measured in 2016, which is recently enough ago, it's probably fairly similar now. So it's, um, it's non-trivial to look at the criteria for um, approval of these pesticides for use in food crops. But it's also really important to understand that the European Union is looking at the same science as, in this case, it's the EPA. And they are making a different judgment based on the strength of the data. So they're saying, oh, look, here's this whatever magnitude of effect link we're going to say we don't want to use this. Um, and so I think that's really important to, to first, you know, understand that different regulatory agencies can look at the same science and come to different conclusions. But I also think that we have a challenge that our metric is really just toxicology, right? Is it toxic? Does it cause cancer? That's, that's really the, the, the simple metric that's being being used. And the World Health Organization has come up with, they actually published um, in late 2019, this uh, new set of guidelines for establishing the safety of chemicals in food that actually go, you know, not just um, is it toxic to the immune system? Is it neurotoxic? Does it kill you if you eat too much of it or eat too much of it over a long period of time? But let's look at 
general system toxicity, which means is it toxic to the liver? Is it toxic to the kidneys, right? It's a much more like looking at each biological system in the human body. They've also added in their uh, suggested um, assessment criteria, allergy and hypersensitivity. Um, so there are, for example, like sulfates that are used in uh, dried fruit. They're used in to help uh, keep like shellfish keep their color, right? So they're used um, as a preservative in a select sort of subset of, of foods. And the sensitivity rate to sulfates is really quite high. And yet they sort of continue to be used. And the World Health Organization would say, well, look, if 30% of people are going to be sensitive to that ingredient, that does not make it a safe ingredient. And the last one, which is where the rest of this podcast episode is going to focus, is um, GI tract considerations. So does this ingredient cause diarrhea? Does this ingredient, right, does it cause GI symptoms? And that includes understanding how that ingredient, um, or, you know, in this case, the, the trace remaining from how that food is grown, how does that impact the gut microbiome? And that, to me, is some of the most interesting science because you can measure it directly. This is no longer looking at a multifactorial disease that is also related to how much that person is sleeping and how active they are and the nutrient density of their diet and how much fish they eat, how much olive oil do they eat, right? If you're looking at cardiovascular disease as your metric, it's really complicated. If you're looking at what bacteria are growing in the gut with and without exposure, that's a much more direct thing to measure. And that is also something that we know the composition of the gut microbiome is impacting risk of every chronic illness. So it's increasing, I mean, even things like obesity, um, right? There's, we are now drawing direct, direct correlations between uh, what bacteria are growing and weight gain, um, but also cancer, cardiovascular disease, uh, mental health disorders, um, chronic kidney disease, osteoporosis, um, like pretty much every chronic illness that's ever been studied, if it's, if it's not a um, heritable genetic disease, and even then, cystic fibrosis still has a gut microbiome link, um, every chronic illness that we have described is linked to some kind of imbalance in the community of bacteria that are living in our guts. So that is our, our through line for looking at whether or not pesticides have, um, and the small amount of pesticide residues that are left on conventional produce in the, in the grocery store, is what is the impact of that on human health? And if we can show directly that the use of those pesticides causes some kind of dysbiotic situation in the gut, then we've got our A leads to B, B leads to C, C leads to D, line of logic to go, okay, well, look, there's, there's the, the conclusive link between these chemicals that we're using and health concerns. Um, so let's go through some of the most commonly used pesticides and um, studies that have looked at how they impact the gut microbiome. Um, these studies are done in rodents. Can I just and I remind think- our listeners, because we're going to I know it sounds like we're already nerding out, but we're mm-hmm. about to take it to like nerd out level squared. And yeah. you can find Definitely. references, names of things, all of those in our show notes on 
thepaleomom.com, realeverything.com, episode 405, The Whole View. You can just Google that <laughs> and you'll find yeah. all the information. Um, so it's. I probably should also mention that um, this information is going to have like an entire chapter dedicated to it in my gut microbiome book. Whenever that comes out, that's obviously been delayed due to COVID and the economy and all of these things that are happening right now. Um, so when that book does come out, it's going to have all of this information in it as well. Um, so let's go through this. And I, I, again, I just sort of won't get too much into the weeds on this. Um, let's, uh, let's really focus on a couple of different key things. So one is microbial diversity. That is generally considered to be the most important measurable criteria for a healthy microbiome. So the more diverse it is, the more different species you have, they tend to keep each other in balance. So you can't have a sort of runaway growth of any individual species or group of species if you have this high diversity because the bacteria basically control the growth of each other. Um, and they do that in a lot of different ways. They can produce direct select antimicrobials. They can produce um, acids, for example, short-chain fatty acids as a result of their metabolism that changes the pH of the gut environment and makes it less favorable to pathogens. So there's lots of ways that bacteria especially good bacteria and a high diversity of them can control the growth of problematic species. So we have diversity as being one of the number one things that we're looking for. And then we're also looking for growth of these really important probiotic strains like lactobacillus and bifidobacterium. And then we're also looking for very small, if not completely absent levels of pathogens, right? Things that can make us sick if they're growing in too high levels of our bodies. And those are things like E. coli, um, salmonella, uh, staph aureus, right? So there's um, these sort of three basic things that we're sort of looking at. Uh, the fourth would be the balance between um, the two main phylum of bacteria in the gut. Um, Bacteroidetes and Firmicutes. The reason why that's important is because there's a huge amount of scientific literature that has shown that that ratio between those two phylum is a strong predictor of an inflammatory microbiome and an obesity microbiome versus a healthy microbiome. So those are all the different measurements that we're sort of looking at. And it's important to understand that rodent studies are actually really good studies for understanding the microbiome. Um, you know, we would always want to eventually be able to do a similar study in humans, but it's not like some other types of research where, um, where you kind of have to you build up to doing human studies in order to really confirm whether or not something is happening. When you're studying um, the bacterial environment, um, pretty much all omnivores have such strong similarities in their gut microbiomes that even if an exact species correlation is not going to happen, the broad changes are very, very similar. So this becomes a really good model for understanding what is happening in humans. That is, that is the thing that I really want to emphasize here. So 
hopefully I know how to pronounce uh, all of these pesticide chemical names. A lot of them are, <laughs> I know I know the acronyms, but I've never actually had to say the whole big word. Um, so let's go through some of the most commonly used ones. Um, a lot of these are um, actually still used globally. Um, so these aren't necessarily part of those 72 that are banned in the EU, um, which actually I think <laughs> makes an even stronger case for um, limiting pesticide exposure. So permethrin is a broad spectrum insecticide that is um, most typically used for cotton crops, which share um, share fields with peanuts. With um, It's also used on corn, alfalfa, and wheat crops. Um, it's unfortunately also lethal to bees, which um, has been a, a big issue. And it's been shown to actually have um, a pretty strong antibiotic impact on the most beneficial um, bacteria. So it suppresses the growth. It basically kills lactobacillus and bifidobacterium. And it's not as antibiotic against pathogens like Staph aureus and E. coli. So it basically, it, exposure to permethrin suppresses the growth of some of the most important beneficial species while not suppressing the growth, basically allowing a niche for these pathogens to grow. Carbendazine um, is a incredibly broadly used fungicide, and there have been a variety of animal studies that show that it directly causes gut dysbiosis. It impacts that ratio of Bacteroidetes and Firmicutes, so it's creating a more inflammatory microbiome, a microbiome associated with um, with inflammation. It um, suppresses the growth of some of the most uh, important probiotic families while increasing the growth of um, some uh, some neutrally existing and also some problematic families of bacteria, um, and it decreases bacterial diversity. So, so generally, all bad things. Okay, this is a big word. Okay, Stacey, help me out with this one. Epoxyconazole? Do you think Listen, being born in American doesn't help me pronounce that word? <laughs> <laughs> EPO. Uh, EPO. Yeah. EPO uh, is another sort of broad spectrum fungicide, uh, very typically used on grain crops. Um, and there have been, again, rodent studies showing that it, again, it skews that uh, Bacteroidetes to Firmicutes ratio. So it looks like a more inflammatory or an obesity microbiome. And it selectively supports the growth of um, bacterial families of which there are many pathogens that belong to them. So again, not cool. Amazolil, that's I'm really just making this up. I got to just pronounce them confidently so people assume that I'm pronouncing them correctly. Um, <laughs> this one's used, uh, it's another fungicide. It's uh, very commonly used on vegetables and fruit, uh, especially citrus, and it's used on uh, tubers like potatoes and sweet potatoes during storage. And um, there have been a, a variety of studies, again, showing that it's changing that balance between Bacteroidetes and Firmicutes. It is reducing uh, diversity. It is lowering levels of lactobacillus and bifidobacterium, those super important probiotics. And it actually in mice has been shown to even uh, stimulate, like it's it's such a big impact. Um, it's it's causing a type of dysbiosis that is increasing colonic inflammation. Um, so it's actually 
showing uh, a type of colitis that you would assume is a precursor to, to disease in these animals. Um, there have been a variety of studies that have actually looked at um, different levels of exposure. And one of the things that's really important with this one, especially given that this is used on fruits and vegetables, um, that even low dose, very environmentally relevant levels of exposure in animals have been shown to cause these issues. Um, and you can actually see not just changes in the microbiome, but changes in things that the microbiome helps to regulate, like the level of mucus that's secreted by the um, goblet cells in our gut, uh, like gut barrier function. So it's actually uh, increasing intestinal permeability. And those are all directly related to these changes in gut microbiome composition towards a microbiome that is more inflammatory and is um, uh, allowing for a basically like a leakier gut. Um, so that is one of the better studied uh, pesticides in terms of um, relevant levels of exposure causing really significant measurable changes. Can I just have a side tangent and give you a break from talking? And Yes. Um, so one of the things that's been interesting to me to think about all of these pesticides is beyond fruits and vegetables. I think that mm -hmm. oftentimes we think about fruits and vegetables because we have a little bit of control over those in terms of how we purchase them and how we wash them and stuff like that. But I think one of the question, the question at the very beginning was kind of like, um, you know, am I wasting my money on getting organic fruits and vegetables? And what I want to point out is, I think from my own extrapolation of the science, I know you're not saying that the science says this, but this is what I do, right? I try to apply it to real life. And I'm like, think, thinking to when I was a newborn and was given formula that was not organic based on grains that used heavy pesticides like this, like how did that impact my gut health from before I was even conscious of making food choices, mm -hmm. you know? And um, that rolls to kind of everything that we then eat later in life. And again, this is not a judgment show. Like my mom did, the best that she could like we were vegetarians for seven years because she was like thought that that was the healthiest thing at the time right um but looking back like you know she said I was not satiated she put rice in the bottle before I was three months old like and I'm thinking to myself what what did my gut health start off at and and how yeah. did that impact my overall health and when we're making decisions as adults now for ourselves or for our children, this is one of the things that I think about, especially with kind of highly processed foods, is what what went into the grain for that or what went into whatever the base of that is. Not just fruits and vegetables. Like this conversation yeah. and all of these things that you're talking about, this is not just the dirty dozen, which I know where we started our conversation, but I, I want to make sure that people are kind of like thinking through all the way that these pesticides are heavily on, um, you know, more wheat, heavily on grains, right? More heavily yeah. on wheat, corn, soy, especially because yeah. those are the main crops of what is like the, the foundational 
base of most of American food. So as you're thinking about all of these things that Sarah's going through, at least for me, um, that's, you know what I mean? I'm like, bing, 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 bing. Oh, I, I'm connecting the dots on a lot of this stuff, <laughs> right? Like maybe you're yeah. having some of those moments or maybe you haven't. And I wanted just to like make sure that I expanded this beyond where we started the conversation because it, it applies more broadly than that. It's like I planned the segue, Stacy, but I didn't. But thank you for this perfect segue into a very depressing study, um, which is looking at chlorpyrifos, which uh, was going to be banned by the EPA. That ban has been rolled back. Um, and one of the things about chlorpyrifos is there have been studies now where they expose pregnant rodents to it, and then they show that the pups, when they're grown up, have gut dysbiosis, including dramatically reduced levels of lactobacillus, um, not as dramatic, but still significantly decreased levels of bifidobacterium, um, increased levels of uh, species that may not be uh, particularly um, beneficial, right? So increased levels of ones that are sort of considered opportunistic. So they're neutral most of the time, but in certain situations they can become pathogens. And um, this is one of the really interesting um, pesticides because it has been studied in this um, uh, exposure sort of like in utero um, and how that impacts the gut microbiome beyond. And again, I want to totally emphasize what Stacey just said is that this is not supposed to be a show about guilt. Um, we have all, I mean, I, I used to add extra gluten to cookies and make them also with soy flour in order to increase the protein content for my child before I discovered, uh, actual information about nutrition. So, you know, please, please understand that this is, you know, we always make decisions based on what we know at the time. And this, none of this information is supposed to um, make you feel guilty about any decisions that you made. Or, you know, as we'll get back to at the end of the show, when we're talking about budget priorities, like this still is next level. This is still not foundational. Um, but I think it's really important to understand that um, there are a number of pesticides in incredibly common use globally in the food supply that um, cause changes in gut microbiome composition that are really undesirable. And we've really only understood, I mean, the gut microbiome as a thing was really only recognized by scientists in the early 90s. This is a really fairly recent discovery that the bacteria that live in our guts actually do something for us rather than just like, oh, they happen to have found a happy home and they just happen to be there. So understanding that we have this symbiotic relationship with them, that's a fairly new discovery. And it actually, that discovery is far more recent than the approval of most of these chemi uh, chemicals, right? A lot of these chemicals date back to the 60s, if not before that, in terms of their, their use in agricultural um, crops. So it's more that this type of information should be stimulating a reevaluation of the use of these chemicals in the food supply. Um, so again, we're not going to feel guilty. We're just going to take this information and make the best choices that we can given our entire situation. 
the next one, diazinon. Um, I remember my mom using diazinon in the garden. So um, I definitely know that I'm pronouncing that one correctly. <laughs> it's like the one, the one that I'm like, yay, and I know how to say that word. Everybody knows that it's the easiest because they don't give you an abbreviation for it. They're like, we trust you to say this one. That's it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> So true. Yes. Um, so diazinon is an insecticide and it is rooted in rice, sugarcane, nuts, potatoes, and corn. Um, and it has also been shown to cause changes in the gut microbiome. What's really fascinating about diazinon is it causes different changes in male rodents versus female rodents. And this is an excellent opportunity to say there are some uh, sex differences in a normal, healthy gut microbiome. So we can actually see that the optimal male microbiome is a little bit different than the optimal female microbiome. What's interesting about diazinon is it had a bigger impact on male mice than female mice, um, including very dramatically increasing the growth of some, some really nasty pathogens, um, pathogens associated with um, inflammatory bowel disease, for example. And even though the changes in female mice were definitely not cool, um, these changes that were like more dramatic in male mice um, was just sort of like, oh, that's, that's an interesting impact. The researchers sort of attributed it to the fact that the microbiome started off differently. Um, but it's also just sort of interesting to sort of see a chemical. Basically, um, a lot of these chemicals are sort of select antimicrobials. And one of the problems with them is that they're selectively suppressing the growth of species that are really important in our gut microbiomes. And in this particular case, it's selectively suppressing the growth of species that are particularly important in the male microbiome, which is just, I'm, I mean, I, I just think that's interesting. And I'm nerding out about it a little bit. Just a little nerding out? Just a little. <laughs> okay, back to a big chemical word. Propamocarb, 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 P-M-E-P, is another fungicide we're starting to see, right? Like they're, they tend to fall under sort of fungicide and insecticide so far. Um, that is generally used to um, control basically molds. Um, and uh, it's um, even applied like directly to the roots in order to, or to like to the base of the plant in order to control um, molds growing and killing the plant from the soil, but it has been shown to accumulate in fruit because of that um, being basically absorbed through the root system. And this is um, another one that, again, it's been shown to induce gut dysbiosis. What's really interesting is it's also been shown to impact what's called the metabolome. So the metabolome is this um, collection of like thousands of bioactive molecules that our gut bacteria produce. So it's not just changing what bacteria are growing in our bodies, it's changing how they are metabolizing food compounds. And so it is changing, um, it's reducing the production of short-chain fatty acids, which are really important molecules that are absorbed into our body and improve cellular health. Um, it's changing how our gut bacteria metabolize bile salts, um, which is really important because a lot of the um, secondary and sort of tertiary 
um, byproducts of uh, metabolism of bile salts by our gut bacteria are toxic. And it's also increasing the production of TMA, which um, trimethylamine, which is the precursor to trimethylamine oxidize, uh, oxidate, which is the um, molecule that has been associated between uh, high red meat consumption and increased risk of cancer. And it's actually uh, the metabolite metabolism of, of heme proteins and carnitine in red meat into trimethylamine, which is then oxidized in the liver, which creates this molecule that has been, again, sort of linked to cardiovascular disease and cancer. It is really considered now by most scientists to be a marker of a dysbiotic gut that is permissive for cancer and cardiovascular disease. So all of those changes being caused by PMEP along with all of the other things that you would expect, right? Decrease in important probiotic species, increase in problematic species. Um, but it's interesting to actually see these really dramatic changes in their metabolism in addition to just gut microbiome composition. There are not that many studies that necessarily look at microbial metabolism in that level of depth. So that's that's cool. I feel um, like you need a drum roll before you move <laughs> on. Like, this is the yeah. one I feel like if you haven't heard of, you must be living some somewhere without access to uh, the internet. <laughs> I don't mm-hmm. know. Um, I definitely made this a uh, last but not least, you know. Listeners, I'm sure you can guess this one that we're about to talk about. (laughs) Yeah. So this is the last pesticide that I wanted to talk about. And um, I wanted to talk about it because um, this is when I was doing the research um, on this for my book, I I got angry. Um, I needed... um, I needed some place to channel my um, my rage. <laughs> it really was, really was like I, I, this was your rage one is of the so hardest cute, sections, though. Right? <laughs> I know um, it's it, this. Believe me, this is the watered down rage. This is not the actual rage right now. Uh, glyphosate. Let's talk about glyphosate, the active ingredient in Monsanto's weed killer Roundup. Uh, this is a herbicide um, that is broadly used in uh, agriculture, um, including uh, Roundup Ready crops, um, which are genetically modified uh, wheat and soy and corn. I believe. I think there's. I think there's uh, Roundup Ready corn. I'm now. I'm now. I'm second guessing that. Um, but definitely wheat and soy that are designed to. Um, survive being sprayed with Roundup so that you can spray the entire field with Roundup in order to get rid of basically the weeds that would grow in those crops. And um, what's interesting is it's also used to um, dry out and basically allow you to to harvest grains a little bit earlier. And then it's sprayed to to dry out the grains so that they can be processed faster. Um, it's, it's used in incredible quantities and what's how it works. So it works by inhibiting this enzyme, 
uh, that has a ridiculously long name um, that is part of a pathway that's called the shikimate pathway. And this enzyme is not in human cells. So this is, this is, I mean, I can remember as a, you know, as a, a college student having these arguments with my mom about glyphosate and the whole argument centered around this, but we don't have this enzyme. So that's why it doesn't impact humans. And that's why it's this wonderful, safe herbicide that we can use. Um, and it's true. We don't have this enzyme. So it doesn't directly impact our cells. But this particular shikimate pathway, this enzyme, is used by not just bacteria, but a lot of the other types of microbes like archaea and fungi that are in our, our guts, um, as well as it's also used by like algae and protozoans and, and plants. It's used to synthesize folates, uh, ubiquinones, um, uh, menaquinones, which are vitamin K2, phenolics, uh, you know, those really important polyphenols, um, as well as all of the aromatic amino acids, tyrosine, tryptophan, and phenylalanine. And so this pathway is an essential pathway for our gut microbes for synthesizing a lot of the compounds that are part of that metabolome that we already talked about that are really, really important for us as well as their own health. So it's not that glyphosate um, is necessarily directly impacting our cells, but they're dramatically impacting the gut microbiome and definitely impacting the gut microbiome at levels that we are already being exposed to in the food supply. So there's been um, a, a couple of um, really well-designed studies, right? So studies looking at glyphosate exposure in a bunch of species, poultry, cattle, pigs, show that it increases uh, probiotic, or sorry, it increases pathogenic bacteria, decreases probiotic, it decreases bifidobacterium, lactobacillus, it increases salmonella, uh, clostridium, which, right, like C. difficile is a clostridium. Um, and I, I think what is, has been the most one of the most important studies I think that I've ever read was this long-term rat study where they uh, put glyphosate at three different concentrations into the drinking water of these rats and followed them for two years. So like two years is most of the lifespan of a rat. So the, this is a really um, important long-term study. And they showed in the in these rats, uh, again, this... Um, altered from acuities to bacteroidetes ratio into one that is more inflammatory and obesity microbiome, this um, dramatic decrease in really important um, probiotic species actually getting back to the, the, the sex differences, females were more susceptible to these changes than males when it came to glyphosate. Um, this large increase in a um, bacterial family that is associated with obesity inflammation, and they, they did this at um, 0.1 parts per billion, which is translates to 0.0003% of the established American ADI, which is the acceptable daily intake. So a fraction of what has been established as an okay amount for us to be exposed to. They also did this at 400 parts per million. Um, and... 5,000 parts per million. So 5,000 parts per million is like 128 times the acceptable daily intake. So they did this all the way from 
tiny, tiny fraction of what we're being exposed to all the way to what would be considered more like um, occupational exposure levels. And they measured these changes. Now, this is what was frightening because this is not what is seen in any of these other pesticides, but it is seen in glyphosate. There's no clear dose response. So um, what they're showing is gut dysbiosis that is very, very similar at this tiny, tiny 0.1 parts per billion as 5,000 parts per million. Um, That huge dose range, they're seeing very, very similar changes into the gut microbiome. And they've, um, there's about, there's other studies that have looked at similar things. Again, there's studies looking at exposing pregnant, pregnant and lactating rats and showing that it impacts their offspring, um, that their offspring have lower bacterial diversity, lower prevalence of lactobacillus, increased problematic, um, a genera of bacteria, um, so these these studies are showing um, a, a, a really concerning impact on the gut microbiome for us. And I, I want to emphasize that um, the our exposure to glyphosate in food is quite high, and it is definitely above the cusp for an impact on our gut microbiome composition. But here is what... Um, this is the thing that triggered my rage when I was met, when I was trying to um, fill out the research on this topic for my book. So um, the FDA has a report uh, where they, um, I think, since 2014, they have been mandated to measure glyphosate residues in the food supply. And so, um, in their 2016 report, uh, they have to. Um, do this report every two years. Um, they measured le- measurable levels of glyphosate re- residues in 63% of corn food crops, in 67% of soybean food crops. But they did not, in the report, say how much residue was in there. Just that it was measurable. Um, so they said it was below their acceptable um, acceptable daily exposure levels, um, but but they didn't say how much. So we can't compare to these studies that show uh, an impact of very small levels. We just don't know. But there have, and the 2018 report um, uh, goes to a dead link now. It now goes to a 404. So I was not able to get the 2018 data to see if it was any different, which is, again, hopefully just uh, an oversight. Um, I'm not a conspiracy theorist uh, by nature, but this one definitely challenged that <laughs> for me. Um, there have been a variety of other studies that have looked at glyphosate residues in food. There was a Swiss study that showed um, pretty high levels, especially in legumes, especially soy-based, um, up to like th- almost three milligrams per kilogram of food, which is would add up to a fairly high level of exposure. Um, the UK, UK government did one uh, where they tested a whole pile of different foodstuffs and found whole grain bread was one of the highest um, sources of glyphosate residues, up to 0.9 milligrams per kilogram. There was a published scientific paper that they just went to a grocery store in Philadelphia and purchased a whole pile of things, but like every single honey that they had and every single soy sauce that they had was like one of the main food groups that they purchased. It's kind of weird when you looked at the study, like what 
foods they were looking at. But 59% of the honey samples that they um, got contained glyphosate residues, including 45% of the organic honey samples. Um, bees are particularly susceptible to glyphosate. It's one of the pesticides that's very dangerous to bees. Um, and 36% of the soy sauces that they tested had glyphosate residues that were quite high. Um, there have been some um, third-party activist groups that have um, done glyphosate testing. So the Detox Project and Food Democracy Now have done testing where they basically uh, they showed – they tested a bunch of like breakfast cereals and crackers and those types of products and found glyphosate residues in all of them. Um, and those are, you know, very normal foods that would be found in American grocery stores. Um, and then there was another scientific study that looked at the exposure in soybeans that were grown in Iowa and found um, that especially like the Roundup Ready soybeans had incredibly high levels. 8.8 um, .8 milligrams per kilogram was the highest that they tested. Um Interestingly, they compared that to organic soybeans. So they actually showed much lower levels of, of Roundup residue on organic and showed that the organic soybeans had a healthier nutritional profile. So they actually were more nutrient dense than the GMO, GMO soy. So all of this to say, um, our exposure is pretty high. There've been a bunch of studies that have also shown that um, most humans in the world have glyphosate residues detectable in their urine. So there was a study shown in Europe where it's not even broadly used that still 44% of people who lived in cities so that would have no exposure, you know, walking through a field, for example, 44% um, of them had glyphosate residues in their urine. Um, in America where glyphosate is used at a much higher level, there was a, a pilot study out of a, Oh, I didn't write it down, but I, I seem to remember it was a Californian um, university did a bunch of studies and showed glyphosate residues uh, in American samples was found in nearly 87% of them um, with the highest detection frequency in the Midwest at 93.3% and the lowest in the South at 69.2%. So all in all, I think, um, you know, we can, we can draw this very strong through line with um, this research, which is why this is how I wanted to address this question of uh, whether or not the EWG's dirty dozen list is based in science. You know, the EWG is looking at this much more, more sort of broad group of criteria, and they're taking a very similar standpoint to the European Union of, you know, a small effect is still an effect and we need to be concerned about it. When I do this deep dive look at the impact on the gut microbiome, this is really where I see the biggest area for concern. And I think that it's especially important because it is not currently part of the criteria by the FDA and the EPA for whether or not these chemicals are going to be approved for use. And it really needs to be. And that is the thing that I feel really needs to change. Now, there is some good news. And the good news is, is that a healthy gut microbiome and high fiber consumption can actually protect us from absorbing a lot of these pesticides. So there have been studies that shown that lactobacillus, for example, can help uh, reduce how much um, uh, pesticide residue on our food gets into our bodies. There's studies that show that higher fiber consumption 
can at least partially reverse the gut dysbiosis um, caused by uh, chlorofyrophos, for example. So there also is some studies that show, you know, exactly as we get back to the heart of this question of, am I wasting my money, <laughs> is that um, it, the answer is no, that this vegetable high vegetable consumption um, is still really important because it supports a healthy gut microbiome to be eating those those fruits and vegetables, and because a healthy gut microbiome in a lot of ways is going to protect us. There's actually, um, and I'm going to have a chapter on this in the book as well. Um, this is one of the the pieces that I've I finished the research for, but haven't completely finished the writing for. Um, but actually, a healthy gut microbiome can protect us from a lot of environmental toxins. So they can also, for example, protect us from some heavy metals, um, a lot of uh, environmental contaminants, for example. Um, so there is still this really strong argument for, um, even if we can't afford organic, to not let that dissuade us from eating that high vegetable consumption because of this, I think, very exciting two-way street where even though pesticide residues are impacting the composition of our gut, the composition of our gut, which is influenced by more than just that, right? It's also influenced by how much vegetables and fruit we're eating, mushrooms, nuts and seeds, variety, um, how much fish, um, how much, uh, you know, how high quality the olive oil is that we're consuming. They really like polyphenol rich foods like tea, um, like chocolate. Our gut bacteria love chocolate. Um, so, so all of those things are helping to determine the composition of our gut microbiome. They're also sensitive to lifestyle. So doing all of those things becomes, I think, even more important um, when we're not necessarily in a position to be able to seek out and afford this sort of like highest echelon of food quality. It's still really important to eat a vegetable-rich diet. And I, again, that's why I want to sort of categorize all of this science as this is next level. The foundational principle is still eating a lot of fruits and vegetables. That is still really, really important, even if our only access to that is conventional. Beyond that, yes, the Dirty Dozen list and the Clean 15 list from the Environmental Working Group are a wonderful tool. I really think that not that I agree with everything that the EWG has ever said, um, but this in particular is, I think, spot on in the sense of trying to the importance of trying to minimize our exposure to pesticide residues. I think, like the way that I look at it, is that podcast that was originally referenced. And what we're saying, I don't think are so far apart. I think that there is information like, yeah, oftentimes organic produce can have organic based pesticides on them. Um, does that mean that it's better or could be better based on everything that we went through? Yes. Does it mean that it's perfect? No. I mean, even if you grow it in your own soil, like who knows who lived in the home before you and what they put in the soil. Mm -hmm. And you know what, like, it's just, it's a, the planet is shared by us all and it's out there. And one of the things that really like affected me when I was originally learning about all this a few years ago, there was a documentary and I can't remember the name of what it was. I think it was one of the ones that um, Joel Salatin was in and was screened locally, but Unfortunately, if Matt knows what it is, we'll put it in the show notes because um, <laughs> he has that kind of memory. <laughs> but 
it talked about how a farmer who had an, an organic farm next to a farm that was using pesticides um, branded by one of the ones we've referenced that most of you will know <laughs> um, was sued because he wasn't paying that company for their pesticide, even though he didn't want it. Like in that, I think that was, I think that was food Inc. I think Matt, Matt, tell me if I'm right. <laughs> but it like blew my mind because in my perspective, having like legal familiarity and regulation familiarity, I would have thought that the farmer who wants his crops to be organic has more of a right that the neighboring farm not contaminate his crop, but instead, not only could he not get prevention of contamination, but he was then sued to owe money for the pesticides that was coming over from the wind and the seeds of the neighboring farm. And so, you know, one of those things about the guilt and all of that is from the perspective of even if you're buying something that the person has certified organic because that's how they're growing it, the neighboring farm or the soil that it's grown in Mm -hmm. or whatever could be contaminated. And that's why we do the best that we can with what we can and become educated on um, what other things we can do to support healthy living because nothing is ever perfect. Like you're, if you're breathing in the air around you, it's polluted, you know, like it's, there's just nothing you're ever going to do that's going to be perfect. And so if you can prioritize eating foods that have known highest levels of contamination, which is essentially what the EWG focuses on, and saying like, these are the ones that are going to be the most harmful of non-organic, try to focus on eating these in a cleaner version, if you can, whatever that looks like for you, um, and focus more on the ones that are clean um, for the others, that's, I mean, do the best you can. <laughs> you know, I just, I yeah. feel like no matter what you do, you're, it's going to be there whether it shows up in your urine or not. Like, I just, that's why we focus on um, living a lifestyle that allows our body to, you know, increase liver detoxification from a natural perspective, right? Like, that's why you have a liver. I, I also want to be clear that, like, toxins aren't um, necessarily something that your body can't handle if you're supporting all the other things that we talk about. Like, that's why we have a liver. And yes, it can um, affect the microbiome and all of these other things. But if you are losing sleep over like, oh, these things I can't control and blah, 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 that's not good for you either, right? So, um, yeah. yeah, that's my soapbox. Do we want to run down? I, I think it's great. Okay. Do we want to run down? Yeah. We've referenced the EWG's uh, Dirty Dozen and Clean 15 list. Um, just to, like, let everybody know, it's 2020, and it was recently updated, I think, like, a year or two ago. I mean, a month or two ago. And it's updated annually. So, I do find that, like, the same core nine to 10 show up every year, but then there's usually like the frequent flyers of the dirty dozen. Exactly. But then there's usually a couple that will like pop on and off the list. So nah, but like spinach and celery are on it every year. I think um, grapes and berries are as well, because yeah, if you think about 
how difficult it is to grow them without bugs consuming the crop is essentially why someone would put a pesticide on them. So Mm -hmm. um, top to bottom, strawberries, spinach, kale, nectarines, apples, grapes, peaches, cherries, pears, tomatoes, celery, potatoes. I will tell you that most of those ingredients, most of those items can be found frozen at a better price. Um, mm-hmm. And when they're frozen, they are um, picked at their peakness. And so you're actually getting, we've talked before on the show about a higher quality of food with a higher density of nutrients than if you were to buy it fresh out of season, for example. So one of the things that we do to save money is we buy like frozen organic strawberries or um, yeah. different kinds of things like that. So if you're looking to save money, that is a possibility. Um, and the clean 15. Um, so these are the ones that had the lowest residue. So this is also um, at Stacy, you said this at the beginning of the show, let's just reiterate it here. So if you're going to peel it, so like apples are on your dirty dozen, but if you don't like apple peels and you're planning on peeling that apple, you're peeling off the vast, 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 vast majority of the pesticide residues. So again, if you're going to peel it, that's, you kind of like, you can put that into its own little, little pile of, um, foods where you can remove, right? Like you can peel potatoes, right? So, so if you're going to get something off the dirty dozen conventional, look at ways that you can either wash that, that food very, very thoroughly, um, or ways that you can peel the food in order to remove the vast majority of the pesticide residues. The clean 15 are the ones that have the lowest residues on them. They include um, avocados. I said that in the Canadian way for you. Are you pleased? I am so pleased. (laughs) You're welcome. Um, sweet corn, pineapple, onions, papaya, sweet peas, eggplant, asparagus, cauliflower, cantaloupe, broccoli, mushrooms, cabbage, honeydew melon, and kiwi. I would not have guessed asparagus. Cabbage is always on the list. Um, like it's interesting to me that something like, um, I would have thought asparagus would have been eaten up by the bugs, but maybe not. <laughs> um, so it's, so I draw it. So I, during the farmer's market season, I like to uh, start my grocery shopping every Saturday morning at the farmer's market. And then I round out my, my, what I need for the week with, from the grocery store. And so I often think about like, what do I get from the farmer's market that might have a whole pile of bug holes in it or that might have like you open it up and oh look there's a slug or (laughs) like aphids or whatever um and those are often the the dirty dozen ones like because I'm getting them from either certified naturally grown or USDA organic farms not let's also the USDA organic certification is really expensive so a lot of small family farms are growing organically and don't have the certification um, I don't worry about that. I talk to the farmers and find out how they're growing their food. And I, I go by like what they're telling me in terms of how they grow their food, not by whether or not they have a certification because of that reason. But um, things like kale, which is on the dirty dozen list, kale often has little holes in it when I get it from the farm um, or for the farmer's market. So interestingly, when I when asparagus is in season here, it's I don't think I've ever seen asparagus – at my farmer's market that's full of holes or bugs. So I think of the maybe top it's just a more resilient. 
Yeah. I think of the top as being like a little gnarled sometimes, you know, but yes, you're right. Also, when you said that you were like cool with when you find slugs and aphids in your food, I wish Mm -hmm. that we would have been on video because (laughs) I made a face. (laughs) Ooh, there was a face. I was like, nope. I don't. I don't eat the slugs or aphids. I wash them off. I'm going to I'm going to be honest and it might make me like you might lose an opinion of me listeners when I tell you this, but when I find a bug in my romaine lettuce when I'm going through and washing it, if there is a live bug, I throw the whole thing out. Like I can't I can't <gasps> I, I know. I like no. I can't do it. It is and so if that is you, friends, if you're not loving the slug in your lettuce, united we are <laughs> and that's I know it's wasteful I, but like I literally cannot there's no way I could eat it like I can't I know and it's there in the in the field but when it's in my home it's just I have to draw a line it's too much I <laughs> you're like uh, Stacy. I'm so disappointed in you I know and this, I don't this eat- is not like a spider in the shower right like uh, the spiders in the shower, it goes down the drain. Like I, I will catch a bug and release it to the wild. If it's somewhere else in my house, if it's in the shower, it's too bad bug. You, you crossed a line, but this is, you took the, you took the bug out of, it was so happy there in the field at that whole head of lettuce. And you took the bug out of its environment to bring it into your home and eat its food. And then not only do you kill the bug, but you, you don't even then eat the food that you stole from the bug in its habitat. Like I said, it's not a choice I'm proud of, but I'm just being honest. And I know I'm not the only one I'm going to hear from at least one person who's like, Oh, Stacy, we're so with you. Um, Cause I've tried to like rinse it off. If it's just dirt and stuff like that, like no problem. Of course, obviously mm-hmm. like just, you know, rinse it off. But when there is something alive, and moving around, I'm like, oh, it's yours. You can have it. Take it to, <laughs> take it to the trash. Or, um, we had a compost pile for a while, but we don't. We need to do it again. Maybe that. Maybe maybe this will be my motivating factor. My guilt from this moment. No yeah, guilt. You can release release the the bug and its food back in, yes, into the wild. Yes, by and that way, it's not compost. completely wasted. Well, um, okay. Last but not least, is it worth the price? Um, I think we've established that I know it's going to shock our listeners who've been around a long time when we say this, um, eating fruits and vegetables is a good thing. <laughs> Just, yeah, I think we've, we've established that. Um, so what next? Well, let's, let's t- talk about ways that we um, are able to increase and, and we're neither one of us eat hundred percent organic fruits and vegetables. So like, like let's remember that perfection is not necessarily the the goal right i mean obviously it'd be great if you only eat organic in season locally grown produce like good on you but um let's let's be real and um and admit that we um we both do the best that we can and neither one of us are perfect and that's okay if that is the vast majority of our listeners um but ways that i get more organic produce. So I basically have found that the prices at my local farmer's market, and I realize not all farmer's markets are like this, um, are I'm getting organic, locally grown in season for about the same price as conventional in the grocery store. So it's actually 
um, a way that I can get higher quality produce without increasing my budget is by going to my local farmer's market. I also find that going to the farmer's market sort of right as they're closing up. Now, obviously, this isn't a thing during COVID, but this is a thing during normal life. Um, whatever was like the super bumper crop that week that just like like everything, like all of the kale grew this week, um, there'll be so much left over at the end of the market. If I'm there as the vendors are packing up, they will be like, oh, can you just take two more? And I'm like, yeah, I'll eat them. Like, I, they, don't worry. I'll either freeze it or eat it. It, it won't go to waste. And so uh, excellent budget tip. Um, develop relationships with your local farmers. Like, actually get to know them by name um, and um, and shop at, the, <laughs> shop at the end of the market. There'll be less choice, but what there is left will be a better price, typically. Um, so that's one of the ways that I save money for really high-quality produce. Um, one of the other things is there's you you subscribe to Hungry Harvest, right? Hungry Harvest is what it's called. That's correct. Yeah, and a yeah. lot of these services um, are like full right now. So I know Hungry Harvest has a waiting list because mm-hmm. so many people are trying to get fresh produce delivered to their doorstep, which is something you can do. So I subscribe to Misfit Market, which is uh, a similar one, but hung- like it's the one that is in my region Local. in Georgia. Yeah. yeah. There's also one called Improper Produce, and I, I'm sure there's other ones. Those are just yeah. the ones that I know of. But they they basically – it's a weekly box that's delivered to your house that is organic, um, and it is the things that are weird shapes or had a little tiny bruise on the side that the grocery store went, oh, no one's going to buy that. And they're, they're great. I, I like weird-shaped things, so – this is completely consistent with with my philosophy on food. If I was at the grocery store, I'd be like, look at this funny sweet potato. And I would get the funny looking one anyways. <laughs> so now they just get delivered to my door. Um, when I um, subscribed for Misfit Market, it was, uh, I only learned that they existed in my area. I would have been a subscriber for the last few years if I'd known they were here. I was on the Hungry Harvest and Improper Produce mailing lists for when they arrive in Georgia. Anyways, I found out about Misfit Market thanks to my neighbor, um, and I subscribed, um, I would say, early on in the coronavirus shutdown, and what they had was they had a wait list for before you started, and it was, at the time, it was like two weeks. I think now it's up to three or four weeks, but once once you're, um, once you're through the through that like waiting to get started, then you get it every week. So it's, they're just trying to ramp up responsibly. Um, so a lot of these, these different services probably do have wait lists, but I, I highly recommend if this is uh, a priority for you getting on the wait list. And one of the things that I've really liked about it is the, um, the surprise nature of it. So it's like, oh, I open the box and go, what have I got? Oh, I'm going to have to figure out what to do with collards this week, um, which is one of the things I had in my box last week. I put them in a frittata, just FYI, and it was delicious. <laughs> we do like a meal plan when our box arrives. So we look at what else is in the fridge, what we have that's stable that'll stay a long time, and then we like prioritize, okay, what do we need to eat first? So I'll tell the boys, find, pick out a recipe with collards. Pick out a recipe mm-hmm. with broccoli. And then um, we've been a lot better about not wasting foods by starting to freeze more. So um, my freezer was full of meat of like more than five years old that had been um, 
freezer burned from like mm-hmm. buying cows and pigs for years and years and then having like bits and pieces at the bottom of the freezer that we never ate. And so one of the things that we did this um, quarantine period is we spent a few hours like going through and inventorying and cleaning out that freezer, letting it completely thaw, which gave us about <laughs> half as much space because I don't know about you guys, but my deep freezer had gotten out of control with the freezer burn on it. <laughs> it's quite embarrassing. Um, it's what happens when you like live with boys and you tell them to go get like something from the freezer and then they don't close it all the way and then blah, blah, blah. Anyway, so uh, yes. yes. Um, so doing that allowed us to have more freezer space. So now we've been better about like, oh, we can freeze the broccoli or we can freeze whatever if we don't eat it in time. Because I found what was happening before is we were not eating everything because there was that element of surprise and because we weren't meal planning and um especially when Matt was home and um I was working and the kids were in school like it was just crazy right like every all, everything that everybody mm-hmm. was doing so now we have a little bit more thought into okay we're going to spend literally 10 minutes um once a week when our box arrives and we're going to come up with five meals that include those ingredients and then Taco Tuesday is always the other night and then leftovers is the other night. So we only have to Uh come up with five and there's five of us. So each one of us comes up with one meal and it works out really well for us. So, um, I, I so rarely have the opportunity to correct you, Sarah, but just in case our listeners are looking up the things that you referenced, it's actually imperfect produce, not improper produce. And I, when you were saying it, I was like, (laughs) improper what did the produce do it's improper um it was very rude it used some (laughs) salty language it was american produce and not canadian produce (laughs) that's it didn't speak the queen's english yes for those of you who don't know sarah used to be came from canada and that hence all of the canadian jokes this episode um yeah so i would say um Farmers markets having a relationship with those people, like you said, where um, they they might reach out to you and they have extra bulk trying to get rid of something, or you know, mm-hmm. if you go at the end of the day, like you mentioned, um, buying things in season or buying it frozen, um, and then these services are are certainly ways that we've been able to increase our um, organic. I, just to give you a perspective, um, our organic box is at least 30% off what we would spend getting those items at a grocery store regular, like, right. So I'm upgrading to organic and I'm saving 30%. So even if I get something and it arrives at at my door, door. exactly. So even if I get something that I don't love, like I've still saved a ton. And what I love about Hungry Harvest, I don't know if it's the same way with everything, is they give back and they work with local food banks. And it's not just a for-profit company. Like, they're they're helping with other things as well. So I love that aspect of it. Um, we we probably – I know I have a referral code for Hungry Harvest. If you're listening to this, you're welcome to use that. I think it gets you, like, $10 off your first order. We'll put it in the show, note, show notes. Do you have something like that for Misfits? Sarah? I think I do have a referral. I – I do have one for Misfit Market. It might only be good for one use. So I will put it in the show notes and maybe, maybe the first person is lucky and everyone else is out of luck. Um, but I think it's $25 off oh, wow. your first box. Yeah. Um, which is, uh, I, that's like most of the, 
right? The, the, the big box yeah. I, th- I think is only 35 bucks. So this is um, not like, some, yeah. this is not like a, po- like a podcast special sponsorship thing. This is just like you, <laughs> no, obviously. You, you and your neighbor could do this too. It's just like the referral sign up mm-hmm. things that gets you a discount when you sign up. And then if you share your link, once you're in, you can also do the same thing. So, um, Sarah, thank you so much for all of your research. I know that someone originally asked about, a simple dirty dozen. And I appreciate that (laughs) while we cannot finish a show in under an hour, that it's not just like a a short answer that I gave at the top of the show. I'm going to rebut 79% of the members of the Society of Toxicology. (laughs) I better have some good science to do it. There you go. Um, If you have any follow-up questions about all of this, because I feel like we really threw a lot at you. Remember that you can email us through the contact forms on our blog and you can, um, you know, uh, comment on social media posts and engage with us so that we can give you those answers because listeners, we can't hear you. You're shouting at us right now. And unfortunately (laughs) we can't hear it, but we do get your emails and we do get your social media comments and we are always happy to hear from you. If you have been loving the show, whether since it was the paleo view or since it's the whole view, if you could help us spread that word to others, we would be so appreciative whether or not you share a link to one of the shows you've enjoyed with a family or friend um, or leave a review. We would, so greatly appreciate it. You can leave a review every couple of like weeks or months. So even if you left one like last year, it would be so nice. What a wonderful gift if you went and left another nice review. Um, So we thank you so much for tuning in. And next week is an even doozier of a show. Oh, yeah. That actually builds off of the information from this one as though it was planned. What? You I have a plan with I try. 24 pages of science notes? <laughs> hey, hey, that's an exaggeration. There's only 10 pages of science notes on this podcast. I can't be one to talk. When you've put me in charge, I've come up with that many pages of notes mm-hmm. as well. Yep, it has happened. It has happened. I, but I, uh, we well, feel very passionately that if we're going to tell you something that we're going to not just give you the science, but we're going to give you the references because that's what we teach you to do here on the show is check your references. Don't just believe somebody who can get on the internet and say anything they want. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh! if only more people just, just, just fact-checked it. It'd be great. <laughs> we're passionate about fact-checking on this show. And with that, let's wrap it up. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for listening and we'll be back next week. Thank you for being part of this awesome community. We know that we would be besties if only you could chime in. Super besties. The best way to stay in touch with us is to engage on our social media, subscribe to our newsletters, and share this podcast with others. Thank you for sharing. We love your reviews in iTunes, Stitcher, or however you listen. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. 
Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.